Glad you're here this morning. We're in a series called The Church as God Describes It. And last week, we talked about the church as the family of God. And I know many of you have experienced that sort of feel in, in this church here at Elm Grove. And maybe you've been ministered to by the family of God. And, and before, it was interesting how the Lord worked this out. Before I even began this series, there was a lady, a member in our church, who approached me and said, I'd like to be able to tell the church how they have ministered to me, how the family of God has ministered to me. And I said, well, hey, I've got a series coming up, and that'd be perfect. I said, let's, let's sit down, and, and you can just talk like you're talking to me, and we'll record it, and we'll put it on video, and you can tell the folks. Uh, and this would be not only from her, but I think representative of many of the testimonies that could be given. Uh, we've got a little video I want to show you, about 30 seconds or so, of Vicki Guerin, who has been impacted by our church, and her just telling me about that as we recorded it. Guys, can we get that up? That's pretty neat. I know many of you, as I said, could probably say the same thing. And out of our sermon last week on the family of God, I thought it was appropriate to kind of follow up and just reinforce that. And, and I, I happened to be with Vicki that particular morning, and other church members got there. And I tell you what, I... Not only was I encouraged to see that, but I, I was proud to see that. I, I was proud that folks had, uh, had taken those steps. I know many of you have done that for a variety of families, so, uh, so thank you for that. Uh, that is the family of God uh, in action. So um, anyway, if you, uh, if you at some point have a, a testimony like that and you'd like to, to be able to share or, or something God has done in your life, I'd love to be able to, to talk with you about it, uh, be able to plan a, a time where maybe it would, uh, would be very appropriate uh, during, our, during our service. So. There's a, there's a game that I want you to play as we shift gears here, a game that I want you to play the next time you're at a restaurant. And maybe that'll be this afternoon. But I want you, if at all possible, to try to distinguish between the couples who are clearly engaged, I mean, to be married, and then the couples who have forgotten what it's like to be engaged, <laughs> to be married. Now, this is an easy game, I have to tell you. Now, I get to do several uh, sessions each week of premarital counseling. I have several weddings coming up. I'm doing one in December. I have two on the same day in January. That'll be interesting, both in Louisville. And, uh, and then I've got three in March that are, that, I'm, that are all coming up and one the following September. And so I'm, I'm in the midst of premarital counseling. And one of the best things about premarital counseling is they're still excited. <laughs> now... <clears throat> Now, I realize that, that I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek and somewhat, of course, not, but you realize, you realize that, that many, we have many married couples here who are still excited, and I praise God for that. But you know as well as I do that if you go to a restaurant, it's pretty easy to distinguish between those who are engaged and they just can't, they can't wait to talk to each other. They'll talk about anything. They'll talk about the, the cheese sauce and the salsa, and they just, get, you know, they just love each other because of the cheese sauce and the salsa on the table. You know, it just, it's amazing. And then you got the other couples who, you know, they, they, they go out to eat to spend, you know, time together alone somehow. They're just there sitting across from the table, and they might pay the bill together, but that's about it. And, and you, you probably have seen those married couples who've forgotten what it's like to be engaged. And I don't know if you're married or single today, and my point is not to make you feel bad if you're single. I just, I think it's an interesting illustration that Folks who are married and have been for a long time, if they forget what it's like to really be in relationship, to feel that same excitement that they felt when they first got together, it's easy to drift, isn't it? 
easy to get discouraged, easy to have very little joy in your relationship. You, you might stick around, but you're not really excited about it. Um, I, I think an equally painful game to play is to try to pick out which churches are as lifeless as that couple that's forgotten what it's like to be engaged. I, I, I would love for us each to take an opportunity to visit a different church at some point and try to pick out, do they still get what it's like to be in relationship with the Lord, or are they just sort of taking up space at the same table? That game is a little more, well, maybe not a little more, but it's equally painful. But I, I'm afraid that many of our churches are just like that. No joy. They're bored to tears being there. They show up just because it's their duty to be at church. They're bored to tears while they're there. There's no celebration of what God has done for us. There's no anticipation of what we will one day experience in heaven. There's no impact on real life. It's just another thing to check off the list each week. There's a reduced amount of purity in churches that have forgotten what it's like to really be in relationship with the Lord. They, they sort of show up, but it doesn't matter what they do and so on. And I'm really, as I've mentioned the last couple of weeks, concerned for the church in America. And I don't just say the church is somebody out there, but all of them concerned because I believe that we as Christians and we as churches so often easily forget what it's like to be in relationship with the Lord forget what it's like to be engaged as the bride of Christ and that's the period that we're in I don't know if you understand that from scripture maybe you do that the wedding is coming that the the consummation of the relationship will happen one day when the Lord returns for his bride and we're in the engagement period right now it ought to be the most exciting time for us and for churches knowing what's going to happen. And yet that's not often the case. Maybe you've been a part of a church that is one that bores you to tears. <laughs> There's no celebration. There's no life. There's no anticipation for what God will do one day and no celebration of what He's already done. Now, scripture describes our relationship with the Lord in many different ways, and that's what this series is really all about. And one of those is the bride of Christ. The Bible uses marriage terminology quite often in relation to God and His people. In fact, if you got your Bible handy, let's learn where a couple of things are real quick. Turn in the Old Testament to the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is toward the latter third of the Old Testament. It's a large book. So if you're kind of flipping through, you're likely to see Isaiah come across. If you get to Psalms, take a right and go toward Matthew. Isaiah chapter 54, we're going to get a, just an example here of the marriage language that is used between God and His people. Now the prophet Isaiah here in, in verse 5 is talking to the people of Israel and he's reminding them of something. And he says, Isaiah 54 verse 5, For your husband is your maker. His name is Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Isaiah reminds them that, look, you are in a betrothed marriage relationship with God Almighty. The book of Hosea, turn to the right a little bit more. Now this is going to be a little bit harder to find, all right? Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. If you want to do an interesting study on the patience, forgiveness, the long-suffering of God, read the book of Hosea. 
Look in Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, Go and marry a promiscuous wife. Now, how about that for some instruction from the Lord? And have children of promiscuity. For the whole land has been promiscuous by abandoning the Lord. The whole book of Hosea is an illustration in real time of a man commanded by the Lord to go marry a prostitute. Someone who would be unfaithful to him over and over and over and over and over again. And Hosea was to take her back each time. And what God is illustrating is that this is what I've done as the husband of Israel. Over and over and over, the people have been adulterous. They've run out on me. They've abandoned me. And he's letting them know, look what I've done over and over. Uses marriage language to highlight the relationship. We know, of course, in the New Testament, the bride of Christ is used. I want you to turn with me in Ephesians chapter 5, and that's where we'll focus today. Ephesians chapter 5. Now, this particular passage of Scripture that we'll look at is one that may be familiar to you. I don't know if you've been to a wedding before and you've heard this passage read. Typically, right before uh, we do the, uh, the I do's in a wedding, I, I will read this particular passage of Scripture as it pertains to each person, the husband and the wife, and I will remind them of their responsibilities to each other and to the Lord. But I don't know about you, but when you read something like this, you kind of think there are parts of it that, well, yeah, that makes sense, and I can see how a husband should love his wife, and the wife should respect her husband, and so on. But what in the world is it talking about when it says something about Christ in the church? Look at it with me, as we'll, we'll, we'll see this. Verse 22, Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as also Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her in the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery or this revelation is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And we often relegate that to a simple marriage sermon. But I really believe that marriage is the application of the overall truth of what Paul is talking about, that he is talking about Christ and the church, the relationship that the church and its individuals should have with their Lord and the relationship that the Lord has with his people. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. There's, there's a, a target, an idea that we are aiming for in all of this. Look with me again in verse 27. What Christ has done, it, it says, He did this to present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but holy and blameless. There are two elements there that as the bride of Christ, we absolutely need. Remember last week and the week before, I gave you two things to remember. 
Now this week I'll give you two more. As the bride of Christ, we need purity and anticipation. Purity and anticipation. Verse 27, to present the church. One day we will be presented to the Lord. The bride of Christ will be united with Him forever. We have something to look forward to. Anticipation, but presented in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. There's the purity. Those are the things that God wants for us. Some would say, well, those are only things at the end time when we are presented to Him. But I really and firmly believe that what God wants for us then, He also wants for us now. What we will experience then, God wants us to begin experiencing now. And so purity, yes, we'll experience purity in heaven. We absolutely will see the fulfillment of all we've anticipated, but that begins even now because He saved us not just for then, but also for now. Now, it might seem a little bit odd to compare Jesus to the uh, to Jesus rather and the church to a husband and wife, but I think once we kind of understand what Paul is talking about here, it'll make sense. Uh, he's not just talking about some romance, you know, romantic kind of relationship. It's obviously that's an illustration of it. But the purity part, he says, in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. That's what the Lord wants for us. But what's involved in us being the pure people of God that he wants us to be? We have to understand first that the Lord has already done all that is necessary for us to become holy and blameless. He's already declared through the death on the cross that he experienced and being raised again, those who believe in Him are declared to be holy and blameless. And yet, I would imagine this morning, if I were to do a poll of our audience this morning, there probably aren't many of us who always feel holy and blameless. In fact, there are probably many of us who feel the exact opposite of holy and blameless a lot of times. Now, we wouldn't want to admit that because we're in church. You don't admit things like that in church, right? <clears throat> Because, boy, you don't want to let your guard down there. They might think something about you. But let's be honest for just a second. We probably, for the most part, don't always feel holy and blameless. But Paul says that's what we are, according to the death of Jesus Christ, that we are holy and blameless, but we don't always feel that way. Sometimes we do things that stain our lives. So if we're holy and blameless, and that's what we've been declared to be by the cross, and how we will be one day when we're completely perfected in heaven, how do we remain holy and blameless during the interim period before the consummation, the marriage between Christ and His bride? What do we do now? Paul gives us a pretty simple outline of, of how we should go about this here in Ephesians 5. The first word, you got a little box there on your bulletin. I just want you to write down the word submission. From purity, the, the arrow points over and you got a little box. Submission. You're not going to find this on the screen, all right? So if you don't have, know how to spell submission, don't worry about it. Just guess. Give it your best guess. A few S's in there, okay? Submission. Look again in verse 23. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ has loved the church. Verse, actually, verse 23 begins with this. I'm sorry. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And then, now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit. 
Now, submission in this context uh, is, I believe, a little harder than it actually sounds. Paul sort of implies that the church just automatically submits to Christ, that individuals within the church just automatically submit their lives to Christ. But we know even by his illustration about marriage that it, it's not always perfect. The church doesn't always submit. But we get here the idea that Christ is the head of the church. And when the, the church is mentioned most often in the New Testament, it's mentioned regarding the local body. And of course, here we know that, that Paul is talking about the overall church and then how it applies to each local church. I think this is something that's easily forgotten. That it is Christ himself who is the head of the church. I don't know how long you've been in church or been around here at Elm Grove. Maybe this is your first Sunday in church or first Sunday here. But I really believe that no matter what's been the case in the past here, whether it's been Christ as the head of the church or not, that we've got an opportunity from this day forward to either build on that or to say, you know what, from this point forward, we're going to elevate Christ as the true head of our church. It's vitally important to the life of any church that Christ be the head. Because if a church wants to be a church as God describes it, then it must submit to the Lord's purpose, to His mission, to His design. This relationship is compared, of course, to the husband being the head of the wife. Now, there are several things involved with the husband being the head of the wife. First of all, it meant that he was responsible for her. It doesn't mean necessarily that he rules over her. It just means he's responsible for her. She's now under his care. This wife, who he's betrothed to, is under his covering. And interestingly enough, even before a Jewish wedding ceremony or consummation of the marriage took place... When a couple was engaged to be married, the wife was already considered, the woman was already considered to be the wife of the husband. You remember in the New Testament, early on, when the, the birth of Jesus is described, and Joseph, Mary's betrothed, finds out that she is pregnant before they've gotten married, he decides to, and some translations use this word, divorce her quietly. It was as if they were already married. She was already covered by him. He was already responsible for her long before the wedding was to take place. His status was now her status. His actions would now reflect on her. His wealth would now be her wealth. His home would be her home. Imagine the implications of that Jewish example for us as the people of God. That even though we've not yet made it to heaven for the consummation of the marriage, that God's status is now our status. That his actions through the death and resurrection of Jesus now reflect on us, declaring us righteous. That his wealth and resources and his greatness now are part of our lives. That his home in heaven will one day be our home. Being the head of the wife didn't mean that the husband was now in position to order the wife around, but that he was responsible for her, that he covered her, was responsible for her well-being, just as her father had been during her childhood. Jesus here is portrayed as this ideal husband who takes responsibility for leading his church as the savior of the church. He says here, Paul does, as the church submits to Christ, so husbands submit, uh, wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Not only is responsibility involved in being the head of the church, but love and sacrifice. It says he loved the church and gave himself for her. 
we've all seen leadership abused. We've all seen, maybe worked for, maybe been around, maybe lived with someone who abused leadership. Maybe you've gone to church before in a place where the leadership, whether it be elders or deacons or, or Sunday school teachers or the pastor or staff or whomever, they abused their positions of leadership. They didn't lead with love and sacrifice. The idea here is that Jesus is the ideal leader. He's the perfect one. He's the one you want to be led by. He says in verse 28, in the same way, <clears throat> husbands should love their, own, their, their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, what? Just as Christ does the church. The Lord has taken responsibility for us, to care for us, to provide for us what we need. He loves and he sacrifices and he nurtures us even still. The Lord is that perfect leader. One maybe that you've never seen. Not like the boss you've worked for who only wanted you to do what you were supposed to do to advance his career. Or maybe the person that you've been in relationship with that just belittles you over and over and over again, abusing their leadership. The Lord leads with love and with sacrifice. And as a result, you picture that ideal husband. As a result, Paul instructs in this passage, wives to submit to that kind of husband who is to love and lead her. And the church submit to that kind of Savior who loves and leads his church. Now, we don't like being told to submit. Some of you didn't want to write down the word submission. You just pretended like you couldn't spell it. I don't know how many S's go in, and I'm not going to write it down. We don't like being told to submit. I just admit to you, I'm just as American as you are. I don't like being told what to do. Maybe you're like that. Now, some of you are just thinking, well, you know, I don't like being told what to do. I'm going to be honest with you. And some of you are thinking, all right, okay, there's somebody else in the world just like that, okay? Found the right church. There you go. But we don't like being told to submit. I think our human nature leads the way in balking at that. We're rebels by nature. We, we are sinners by nature. We, we read something like submission in the Bible, and we say, oh, I, no, 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 no. No, that's got to be misunderstood. You're just not reading that right. There's got to be a different translation that would alter this just a little bit to take the word submission out of it. As the church submits to Christ, we don't like being told to submit. We are loyal by birth only to ourselves, focused only on our own needs, and we're not naturally submissive to anyone. Our human nature balks at it. Also, our, our culture balks at it. You think about our culture. We believe that, uh, that equality among people blurs the lines that, that God has drawn for the roles that people are to play in life, men and women and so on. Instead of seeing this mutual submission that brings about godly relationships and so on, in Ephesians 5, uh, we, we assume or we ignore this passage of Scripture. We, we assume that it's outdated or ignorant or bigoted or, or worse. Talking about submission is not very popular here in the United States. Maybe at one point it was. And you could tell stories and you say, I know what would happen to me if I didn't submit. And then the 1960s hit. And submission went out the window. And we still feel the reverberations of that. Through that generation and my generation and the one that's coming behind me. And we see this over and over. Our culture more and more and more resists leadership, resists submission and authority. 
And I think our reality also balks at it. In all honesty, we've seen so very few good leaders, haven't we? I mean, you, you start, and I don't, I don't care if it's, if it's in the home, in the church, uh, in your business, uh, in government, wherever it is, we see so few good leaders, leaders who love with, lead with love and sacrifice and so on. We've largely just seen the abuse of leadership. And so submission, in our reality, is not nearly a, really a good thing because I'm not going to submit to that kind of person. <laughs> I don't want to be following them. But the results of that kind of life is one of being individualistic, of refusing to follow even godly kind of leadership. And that attitude in our own lives spills over, obviously, in our churches. Paul implies the church just submits to Christ, but we know in reality that's not always the case. We know in reality that there are many churches who simply refuse to submit to the leadership of the Lord. We know that they may say they do, but they really wouldn't know what to do if the Holy Spirit actually showed up one week and started to lead things. Wouldn't know what to do really believe that a church that doesn't submit to Christ may be a good place for fellowship, a good place for friendship, but it's not a church as God describes it. What does submission to Christ involve? It involves as a church us submitting to Christ by simply following his leadership. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. I'm a firm believer, and, I, and if you came over to my office, I'd be happy to show you. I've got tons of books on leadership. I've got two degrees in leadership. And I don't know any more about leadership now than when I started. <laughs> I'm more confused about leadership now than I've ever been in my entire life. Why? Because I think most of the time leadership is brought forth and pre presented from a secular perspective, and we really don't know what true leadership, biblically, is all about. We see leadership seminars, and like I said, I got a ton of books and two degrees hanging on my wall in leadership, <laughs> and I'm still learning, still striving to say, God, what does leadership really mean? I really think we don't have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to leading the church. The Lord's already done it. People would ask me, what's your purpose for the church? What's your mission for the church? What's your vision for the church? And I just go to the scripture, and I say, well, <laughs> I don't know that I have to reinvent it. All those books that are sitting on my shelf, they may be helpful, but it, I just go to the Scripture and I look at our purpose as individuals is to glorify God. And as a result, our purpose as a church is simply to glorify God. That's it. We don't exist for any other reason. You might say, well, get off your soapbox. I'm not on a soapbox. I'm just trying to tell you, here's what it is. This is what I've learned. Submission to the Lord and His leading just means we follow His purpose. And our everything is geared toward glorifying God. What's our mission? Well, okay, that's our purpose. Some of you in the business world, you've got to have a purpose, you've got to have a mission, you've got to have a vision. Our purpose is to glorify God. Our mission, the Lord said in Matthew 28, is to reach people who are lost. It's our mission. It's why we exist. It's why we're here. The hard part is when we get to the vision, because that's the how. The what sometimes is easy. Well, yeah, I see in the Scripture. But how are we going to do that? I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I know the purpose. I know the, the mission. I'd have no clue how we're going to do that. I really don't. I'm okay with that. I, just so you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know how we're going to do it, but I trust that with the Lord's leading here at Elm Grove, with Him as the head of the church, we're going to figure out the how if we stay focused on the what. If we stay focused on submitting to the Lord by following His lead, then the how will take care of itself. The pastor of the church does not truly lead the church. 
the deacons of the church don't truly lead the church. The long-standing members of the church don't truly lead the church. It is Christ and Christ alone who truly leads the church. My job, in all honesty, and that's why you don't hear me stand up and just tell you, here's what I think we should do. Boom, 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 boom. I just want to remind us of the purpose for the church, the mission of the church. And then let the Holy Spirit work amongst us to determine how best are we, as Elm Grove Baptist Church, going to accomplish those two things. The church submits to Christ by following His lead and His purpose and His mission. A church that doesn't do that will face struggle after struggle after struggle. It will go around in circles over and over and over. It will be ineffective. It will have a lack of true conversions and spiritual rebirth. It will be a church of false religion full of maybe divisions and arguments. It will be a church like Jesus describes in Revelation. Maybe they're doing lots of good things, but they're no longer in love with the Lord. They've forgotten what it's like to be engaged. Maybe they're desiring to be faithful to the Lord, but they've allowed impurity to remain. Maybe they have a reputation for being alive, but they're really dead. Maybe a church like that will be neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. Maybe you've read that scripture. The answer to all of that is found also in Revelation when he tells those churches, Remember. Repent, return, listen, pay attention, be committed. Churches that set their sights on submitting to the Lord, to His purposes, His mission, His principles, they move past the majority of their problems. You've seen churches like that, haven't you? They just are just, they hate each other. They don't like each other at all. And I'll tell you what, one of the, one of the things that I like most about being here at Elm Grove is, I, I, now, y'all may have me fooled. Okay, but I really think you kind of like each other. You're kind of okay with each other. All right, now I know there's, you know, there's that person, you know, don't elbow anybody, but you don't understand what I mean. I really appreciate that because I know it can easily be taken for granted. And I really believe that if we ever get to the point where we're kind of arguing with one another, I think if we'll step back and we'll just say, Lord, take us back to your purposes, take us back to what you want for us, many. Maybe not all, but many of the problems would be solved. And most of us are okay with the church submitting to Christ. We like that. We like to be a part of a church that follows the Lord. But what's good for the church is good for the individual. And that's where we have the trouble. That's where we have our issues because we say, yeah, as the church submits to Christ, absolutely. But who is the church? <laughs> we are the church. We would likely say and applaud, yes, he is the leader of the church, but when we turn the mirror on ourselves and not just the church as we might think of it as a building or an organization, we look at ourselves and we have to evaluate and be honest. Is your life submitted to Jesus Christ? Is my life submitted to Jesus Christ? Do you follow his leading? Do you live by his purpose and his mission? Do you order your life according to His principles? Do you submit to Christ as the church is to submit to Christ? You think about your marriage, your work, your private moments, your time and leisure on the internet or wherever it may be. Are you submitted to Christ in all those areas? Submission to Christ 
in the church and in our individual lives is not truly submission unless it touches every area. This is going to be a two-part, at least two-part message, just in case some of you get nervous. You know there's more scripture that I haven't gotten to. We focused really only on one part of it. But as I got up this morning and made my way to my office and began to pray and just read through my notes, and it was evident that there was something I needed to submit to in this particular sermon. <laughs> and that is to, to get to this point and to stop preaching and ask you to respond. Now, I, I, I've told you before I'm not big on just getting everybody to come down front because sometimes that can be just emotionalism and that kind of thing. I, I want what is preached here and what you learn here and what you hear here to affect you, not just today and, and then you forget about it, but it affects you on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and so on. But this morning I do want us to respond, and for many it will be a physical response. I want us this morning as we close our time and we think about as the church submits to Christ, I want us to think about that, yes, as a whole, and we'll cover that in just a moment. But as individuals who make up the church, our individual submission affects the overall submission of the church to Christ. And so I want us to stop and to pray this morning. And I want us individually to be challenged with submission to the Lord in every area. And So let me give you a couple of instructions, and then Danny will play, and we'll have a time of response, and we'll leave. I'm going to roll through a, a list of things that maybe affect you and maybe don't. Maybe they're on your heart and maybe they're not. But I want you, in just a moment, to feel the absolute liberty and absolute challenge to get out of your seat if you're at all physically able and to spend some time with the Lord at what we call the altar, the place of prayer, here in this church building. And maybe, just maybe, you'd say, you know what, Lord, you know what I've been holding on to. And I am going to get up out of my seat, and I'm going to leave that with you this morning. I'm going to submit that to you. So where are you resisting the Lord? Where is it that He doesn't have total control? What's still under your control and not under His? What about your life? Is your life submitted to Jesus Christ? Have you received His salvation through faith? What about your relationships, your marriage, your dating, your friends, your parenting, all of that? What about your time, your work, your goals, your education, the commitments you've made, the things you enjoy doing, the hobbies you have, the television programs you watch, the music that you listen to? What about your attitudes, your emotions? Are they submitted to the Lord? I want to give you a few moments to respond, and then I'll redirect us as we close. But, Danny, if you don't mind, if you would play. I'm not going to ask you to come to me. If you'd like me to pray for you, I certainly will. I'm not going to have our deacons come down and stand because I know that might embarrass you and you may not want to come to them. My goal is not to embarrass you. My goal, honestly, is to put us in position as individuals to receive a move from the Holy Spirit. For Him to take hold in our lives maybe as He's never done before. And I don't know what area it is that in your life you need to come and say, Lord, I'm laying that down and I don't care what these people will wonder, well, what's wrong with him? What's she dealing with? Maybe you'd say for once, I don't care. And I'm going to submit to the Lord.